Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. We're looking at Romans 9 through 11 to unpack it so that we understand how the Calvinists are misinterpreting the passages. And we want to see the passage in its Jewish context and understand that it is not teaching what Calvinists teach. We'll start in verse 27. It says this, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Now, again, just to refresh our mind, what are we talking about with Israel? The issue is the arguer has said, what has happened to Israel? It's as if God's word failed because not all Israel believes. And so Paul makes the point that not all of Israel is Israel. There's a remnant of Israel that believes and there's a non-remnant that doesn't believe. And so he's trying to point out that just because you're Jewish doesn't make you automatically saved with your Jewish thought. And just because you're Jewish and you keep the law doesn't make you saved either. So that's a two-pronged approach the Jews had about salvation. So he's telling them that that way of salvation doesn't work. It's only by faith in the Messiah. So he returns back to the topic of Israel to say, wait a second, let me discuss with you the remnant of Israel and why they, they even exist as part of Israel. So anyway, verse 27 says, Isaiah also cries out, this is Isaiah 10, 22 through 33, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. But the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Now, that might seem like a confusing passage, and a lot of people, when they read it, if they don't have an eschatological view of Matthew 24, book of Revelation, then what Paul is saying doesn't make sense to them. And so obviously a lot of Calvinists don't understand these two verses because they have no eschatology a lot of times. They're either all-mill or post-mill. And so they don't really know what's going on here. So let's understand this from a Jewish perspective, but let's also understand it from an eschatological standpoint, you know, in time standpoint. So his point that he's making, he's talking about Israel. He goes, though the number of the children be as the sand of the sea, the remnant of will be saved. Now the, that's dealing with the remnant theme he's already picked up in Romans 9, that there's a remnant that believes in Messiah. Okay, so his point is the non-remnant is like the sand of the sea. There's tons of them, but there's also a remnant that will be saved. Now, how does the remnant get saved? Because of faith in the Messiah. That's how the remnant gets saved. The reason the rest of Israel is unsaved is because they refuse to come to faith in the Messiah. Okay, but then he goes, the remnant will be saved. What do you mean be saved? Well, there's a two-pronged approach here in what he's quoting from Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10, if you read Isaiah 10, refers to the remnant in the tribulation period. Therefore, that's where Paul is bringing an eschatology into this passage. The Isaiah 10 passage, which is verse 22 through 23, deals with the great tribulation and the remnant in the great tribulation. So that's the context now. So when you read verse 28, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. 
that verse is directly related to Matthew 24 and the the seven-year tribulation. How so? Well, Messiah says in Matthew 24, had not the time got cut short, no flesh would survive. Remember that statement? And the idea is, the, the idea of short work, he makes a short work out of it, that according to Daniel, the tribulation period will only be seven years. If it extended beyond the seven years, no Jewish elect person would be saved. They would all physically die. So when Paul talks about salvation in this passage or deliverance, he's referring to two things. He's referring to physical deliverance, but he's also referring to spiritual deliverance because of the eschatology that's built into the text. Okay, how is Israel going to be saved in the end? Well, we we talked about it. Only a remnant will be saved. Two-thirds of Israel will be killed by the Antichrist. They represent the non-remnant. And then the one-third of Israel will make it through, and that's the remnant. That becomes all of Israel, and then all of Israel is saved at that point in time, and he comes back to save them. Okay, Paul is trying to make the point that this non-remnant failed not because of God's word failed, but because they failed to do something. They failed to accept the Messiah. And so that's why he's getting the, he's putting out the remnant theme. Okay. So if you stay with that, follow the rest of his argument. Okay. Let's continue on. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabaoth or Lord of hosts had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. Now, the idea of Sodom and Gomorrah is a physical judgment on the cities. Okay? And he said, had there not been a remnant, Israel would not exist. In fact, going into the tribulation, if the remnant doesn't exist in the tribulation, Israel would not exist like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's why the time is cut short so that they do exist physically. And then obviously the implication is God would fail at his word in making sure the promises of Abraham come true in the Jews. And that then the arguer with Paul would be correct. God's word had failed because he, God didn't keep his promises. But God is keeping his promises because there's a group of Jews that always will believe and believe correctly and believe by faith. And because of that faith, God then can issue mercy and grace to this group of Jews who become the remnant but also sustain the nation of Israel. It is the remnant and their responsibility to maintain the nation of Israel. And there always will be, all the way to the end. Even, he says, into the tribulation period, and Antichrist won't be able to wipe them out. Okay, continue to follow this. So what Paul is trying to point out is, if God did not intervene with the nation of Israel, they wouldn't exist. And how did God intervene? He intervened based on their response to the call to salvation. The way God intervenes is through grace and mercy if the condition is met by faith. That's been Paul's argument. And obviously, God has intervened to save the remnant because of their faith. Okay, So the Calvinists put the cart before the horse. 
they will say when Paul, Paul will get to the other point that there's an, a remnant according to election. What they will state is say, ah, the reason that there's a remnant that exists is because God elected or chose several Jews to believe, and that keeps the nation going. It's actually the opposite. What we learned about choosing is that God chooses after someone believes. God chooses a person and elects them after they respond in faith to him. And that's the same thing is true with Israel. So the fact of the matter that the remnant exists is because there's always a believing element that receives grace and mercy based on their belief in the Messiah, and that's how they physically survive. And that will, they will continue to do that. So basically then, the Calvinist is reversing the order. To them, the remnant only survives because God chose them to survive. Paul is saying the remnant survives because they believe. And then they're given grace and mercy. Okay, let's continue on. He's going to explain the rejection. Verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. So when he says, what shall we say then? What it is, is Paul saying there's a conclusion now to be drawn from this. And the conclusion is the Gentiles who have no moral sensibilities, who did not pursue righteousness... And what, what he means by pursuing righteousness is that the Jews tried to pursue through the law, the law of Moses, a righteousness for themselves by keeping the law, which thought earned them salvation, right? So the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness per se. Number one, they didn't know the law. They didn't know what God required. And so they're not, the Gentiles never pursued it per se because they didn't know what was required of them in the law. But the Gentiles now receive a righteousness, a foreign righteousness, because of one thing. They believe. And that's what the Bible teaches, that you receive a foreign righteousness by believing rather than working for it or striving for righteousness. You cannot create your own righteousness by law-keeping. So, in verse 31, he says, But Israel, pursuing the law, the Torah, of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. So the idea is these, these Gentiles who don't know the law are getting saved because of faith, and the Jews are not, well, the majority of the Jews are not because they're trying to earn their salvation through works righteousness and through the Torah, by the way. Now here's, I guess, the question. Where did they get the notion that you, in any part of the Bible, could obtain righteousness by keeping the law? Where did they get this from? The rabbis is right. Because you will not find it, you will not find it in the Old Testament. You will only find that teaching among the rabbis. And where it happened, primarily where this happened, was after the Babylonian exile. When they came back, the Sopharim created the school of the Sopharim. That's the embryonic stage of the Pharisees. And the Sopharim started out good but didn't finish well. They ended in apostasy because the apostasy was works righteousness through the Torah. And that's where it ended up in the first century, and it's where it is today. That's where it happened, and that's where the, the foundation of it is. So let me ask you this, because I know what they'll refer to. The rabbis will refer that when Moses tells Israel, 
Let me paraphrase Moses. Obey and you will receive life. Disobey and you will receive death. What is Moses referring to? Because he will make those kinds of statements. Follow God in obedience and you will have life. Don't follow him and you will have death. What is Moses talking about? Is he saying obey and you will get eternal life? Physical life. Thank you. Under the Mosaic law, a lot of times the judgments that you see are the deliverance from physical wrath, temporal wrath, not eternal wrath. Because it's talking about a nation. It's talking about a people group. It's not talking about individual salvation. That's not on the radar. Individual salvation is always from day one, going back to the days of Abraham, has been by faith. Always. But when you get into the Mosaic period, he's talking to a nation. And what he's telling the nation is, if the nation will obey me, the nation will see physical life. They will see physical blessings. I will pour water, uh, rain and water on them to grow their crops, and they will come and do seasons and abundance of crops. It's all dealing with physical life in Israel. So when he says you will see death if you don't obey, he's referring to physical death. This is called the death principle, that if you disobey me, I'm going to hammer you. I'm going to hammer you with other nations that will that will destroy your country, that will destroy you as a people group. I will send you into exile, like he did. And then I'll bring in the Assyrians, I'll bring in the Babylonians, and they will pound you physically. But it doesn't refer to individual salvation. It refers to the country being physically punished or physically blessed. So when a rabbi teaches that, they teach eternal life through those passages, and that's totally wrong. They're misunderstanding Moses. Now, now you're going to be uh, given the answer of why they intentionally misunderstand Moses. Let's go to the next passage. Verse 32. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by works of the law. So they tried to earn it, right? For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Now, we just taught about the stone on Sunday, right? Who's the stone? It's Jesus. Okay, so let me let me point out what's going on here and to give you a better full-orbed understanding of the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone obviously is Jesus. But the Greek, I want you to bring out, I want you to see the Greek word that Paul is using. The Greek word is pro, um, okay, read this, I can't see with my glasses. Uh, Scopto, proscopto, okay? Proscopto, your English Bible is saying stumble. Proscopto in the Greek does not mean like, I'm walking and then I just stumble. That's that's a weak translation of proscopto. Proscopto means collision. Collision. A violent collision where as you collide into this rock, you walk away broken, bruised, and shattered. Because it's like running into a brick wall, so to speak, with a car. You're not going anywhere. Running into a tree. Boom! You collide, and, and the collision sends you back. Doesn't hurt the rock, but it sends you back bruised and messed up. Okay? That's the idea of the Greek, that Christ is the stone of collision. That when you run into him, and you decide to collide, that it jacks you up bad. Really bad. And that's Paul's 
emphasis he's trying to get across to the arguer. The Hebrew, he's going off of uh, uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 28, 16. And the Hebrew in Isaiah, the, the, he doesn't, so like Paul's paraphrasing Isaiah 28, 16, but in Isaiah 28, he uses the word bohan, bohan. And bohan means the rock of testing. Okay, so when you combine Isaiah and you combine Paul, you have the rock of testing or the rock of collision. Okay, so that gives us a little bit more strength of understanding what ends up happening with the Jews. Obviously, the rock of testing is the Messiah. What are the Jews being tested on about him? What is it? What is their problem? They don't believe in him, but why? Is there a reason why they don't believe in him? Is he not fulfilling all the messianic pro uh, promises and prophecies? Is he not doing all the messianic miracles? What is the problem with the Jews and their acceptance with the Messiah? What? They don't want to their power, money, fortunes. Uh, you know, with, with, in the first century, the Pharisees had a lot of money. Uh, they had a lot of power. They had a lot of fame. That's the religious leaders. We talked about that. Yep. Gentiles, what about them? Yeah, so they didn't, there was a, a, a natural built-in animosity towards Gentiles. They didn't want to see them included. That's true. They wouldn't give them works-based righteousness. They didn't, yeah, he didn't fulfill what they thought he would do, right? So there's a lot of reasons. Okay. Yeah. By birth, by genetics and keeping the law. Totally. So it was a genetic thing. We, 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 but that, all of that stuff came from the rabbis, right? It didn't come from scripture. Okay. So because of that, that rock of testing that's put in front of Israel then becomes a collision rock. And they just smashed right into it, and it broke them. How did it break them? It's AD 70. It broke them. They collided with it, and then by AD 70, they get 40 years to repent, and the nation gets pounded by the Romans. Temples destroyed. Not one stone left upon another, as Messiah predicted. A uh, million point two Jews are dead, slaughtered by the Roman, uh, and then the Jews are dispersed at that point in time. The collision is the end of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem, and the dispersion that you have just seen for the last 2,000 years. That's the collision. Boom! Out of the land. And it's until 1948, Israel has been brought back in. So that's a major collision. That's a major collision. Now you can see why the, it's the rock of collision. Yeah, the records were burned in 70 AD, and they, they didn't know. Uh, I want you to think about that, how important the records were to the Jews. And then all of a sudden, 70 AD, the temple goes up in flames. All the re genealogical records go out the door. Now today, no Jew knows what tribe they're from. That's a collision. Boom. So the testing was the test was failed. They collided. And, and, and again, they're not, they're down, but they're not out. But it was a major knockout. Okay. So continue on and it says this in verse 33. As it is written, behold, I lay a stumbling stone. This is Isaiah 20, uh, 28, 16, or basically Bohan in Hebrew is a rock of testing and a rock of offense or a rock of collision. So Paul is paraphrasing, by the way, Isaiah. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Well, that's an interesting thing. Why would he throw that in there? Why would he throw the whole shame thing in there? 
Keep hanging on to that thought. So go back to verse 32. In verse 32, notice what it says, because they did not seek him by faith, but as it were, by works of the law. Okay, I got that. But let me add one more thing to that, and this is going to be your answer, okay, for why they failed the test. Jump to chapter 10, and let's read 1 through 3. Chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. It should be on your notes. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that, the, that they have zeal for God, but notice this, not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Bingo. He just explained to you what their problem is. Did you catch that? They have zeal for God, but they lack knowledge. What knowledge is he referring to? What the scriptures teach about the Messiah, but just the scriptures in general. Because what has happened to modern day Judaism or rabbinic Judaism, even in the first century? They studied the Mishnah, the, the Talmud, and they knew it by heart, the Talmud and the Mishnah, the commentary. What knowledge do they lack? The word of God. That's the problem. He told them, you search the scriptures, but in it, you, you think you find salvation, but I'm in it. I'm the salvation that it talks about. How come they can't see it? Because they don't have knowledge. Knowledge of what? The scriptures. So Paul's linking something. Their problem is that they can't, it's not that they can't believe. It's that they, they lack knowledge. They're ignorant of stuff. They're ignorant of the scriptures. And therefore, their ignorance causes them to do something. It causes them in verse 3 to do what? Because being ignorant of God's righteousness, which they would have learned from the scriptures, had they known the scriptures, what do they do instead? Seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Their lack of knowledge about God's righteousness, or basically, let's, let's, let's explain that. How one becomes righteousness. Righteous, okay? How, one, how the scriptures teach how one becomes righteous. Because they lack that information, they go into earning their own salvation or establishing their own righteousness. That right there is a problem. That obviously would cause them to collide with what Messiah was saying. Yeah. Works righteous. It, it absolutely. Or, it, like, as, as like we're studying about Calvinism, I, I'm going to prove I'm saved by my works. What? No, 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 no. Now you're getting to Phariseeism. Uh, well, I, I had a good week this week, so I must be saved. Well, what about next week when you have a bad one? Well, I guess I'm not saved. And my works prove that I'm not saved. It's like, that's a yo-yo, man. So, notice the principle. I lack knowledge of Scripture, and that causes me to establish my own righteousness before God. You see the connection? Paul says, you're zealous. I mean, you guys who have been to Israel, go to the Western Wall and watch how they act. They are zealous, man. Zealous. 
And they're running back and forth on those buses to get down to get, to get back to home for Sabbath and all. I mean, you can't get more zealous than what you see there in Israel. But they lack knowledge. And the lack of knowledge causes someone to seek their own righteousness. Okay, so apply that somewhere else. Apply that to just life in general. Because someone doesn't know the Scriptures, they're going to seek their own righteousness. Classic. And everybody, Gentile and Jew alike. So, again, this is all consistent. When Paul says, faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by what? Which equals knowledge. You must be given the right knowledge in order to understand the righteousness of God, which makes it easy to accept the Messiah because you have to receive a foreign righteousness. I know that sounds very basic. It's Christianity 101. But for some reason, people seem to not understand this. And I think I know why, and I think you know why too. The reason people struggle with this is because they're establishing their own righteousness and they don't want to be told that, no, you're not righteous. In fact, you're you're falling so short of it and you don't even realize it, then that would be an insult to them. So when Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler, or I think it was a rich young ruler, yeah, and he comes to him and he says, um, I've done all these things in my youth. You know, what, what, what I got, what else? Now, not, it, sorry, it wasn't rich young ruler, wrong guy, synagogue ruler. And Messiah goes, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so this is a different guy. And he goes, and then Messiah says this, if you do those things, you will be righteous. Now, that's odd. Because he says, he, he, he's telling them, if you do that, then you will be righteous. Now, does that contradict the message that he's saying? that you have to get my, your righteousness from me? What did he mean when he told the, the, the ruler, Take, just do those two commands and you will be righteous? What was he trying to say to him? And what's the caveat about those things? What, what, what do you have when you, when you say, okay, those are the two things I need for my own righteousness. Yes, you got to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. you got to love your neighbor as yourself. Do that and you'll have righteousness. What's There's a missing element that, it, that was implied. You can't do them. So the idea is Messiah was telling the synagogue ruler, you can't do even the two commands perfectly. If you could, then you could have your own righteousness and you wouldn't need me. But the point is, I'm giving you two commands, the greatest commands, and you, I'm telling you, you can't do them. That was his point. And then the guy throws it back, and he's, he's, a, he's a, sorry, he's a lawyer. That's who he was. Classic. That's who he was. He was a lawyer. So he comes back, and he, he's still pestering Messiah, and he says, who is my neighbor? Now, at that point, he's playing games. Because the, the rabbis already taught who your neighbor was. And it wasn't Gentiles, that's for sure. And it wasn't Samaritans. So they already had a teaching. So he's trying to mess with the Messiah here, and then Messiah gives him what story? The Good Samaritan story. And, he sh- and in a Good Samaritan story, what does he show about a Levitical priest, a Kohanin, and then a Samaritan? The first two do nothing to help the guy on the road. 
and they're, 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 they work in the temple, right? The other guy's just a Samaritan, can't be saved, according to Jewish. But the point about this is this. You can't even do a fundamental thing like giving mercy. And if you can't give a, a mercy to a Samaritan or, or sorry, um, someone on the side of the road, um, how much more do you think you're not going to be saved? You're out of your mind if you think you're saved. And so the whole point that Messiah is trying to make with the, the Samaritan passage is you guys don't do this. So you, you can say, so by the Samaritan doing it is an insult to the Jewish audience. Does that make sense? And he's saying, you guys don't even do this. So forget it. You don't, you don't even keep the law. Theoretically, if you were perfect and you kept the law perfect, yes, you would attain your own righteousness. But Messiah is saying, no, no, I have to do it for you. And then I can give you my righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness that must be given. Now, you already know that. The same is true for the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler says, I've done all these things, so I guess I'm perfect. And what does Jesus come back and tell him? Sell all you have and come follow me. What does sell all you have mean as far as the commandments are concerned? Because there's not a commandment that says sell all you have. Right? So the guy is boasting that he keeps the Ten Commandments. But sell all you have and come follow me is hitting what commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. So the rich young ruler, he's boasting that he keeps all the Ten Commandments. So Messiah comes, huh, let's try number one. Drop all your money. Because that he, Messiah knows that's his God. Drop your money. He won't do it. And he goes away sad. Why? Because he had an idol, and he, he was breaking the first commandment. And obviously the Jewish audience is seeing this, and the Jewish audience believes that money is a sign of blessing from God, which is exactly the opposite, but that's what the rabbis taught. And so they were all jacked up in their thinking about money. And so he, he, he puts them in his place. So as you can see, Paul is making this point that that the Jews don't like. They're actually insulted by what Paul is saying. Because he's saying this, these Gentiles who did not live up according to the law are now getting in before you. Because you don't understand the Scriptures, number one. So even though you gave us the prophets, even though you gave us the Messiah, you don't even understand your own word. If you did, you would see that Jesus is the end of the law, that he is the, he's the righteousness of it. And, and so they're mad at Paul for what he's saying and, and that the Gentiles are coming in without pursuing righteousness. So here's the deal, practical application of this. When you teach the gospel correctly to, to unsafe people, okay, or even cults or whatever, what do they normally respond about you saying it's by faith alone? It's too easy. What do you mean it's too easy? Well, you just believe and that's it. I can I can live crazy and, and all of a sudden I just believe and then all my sins are forgiven. That's not right, they'll say. Here I am, I've grown up in the Mormon church and I've pursued righteousness all my life or I grew up in the Jehovah Witnesses or I grew up in the Catholic church and I did this, this. I, got, I was confirmed, man. I was baptized by the priest and, I, I you know, all this stuff, you tell me, I was pursuing righteousness. I was trying to be a good guy. And you're telling me it's all for naught? 
Yes, I am. It's all considered dung, according to the Apostle Paul. All that you did spiritually to create your own righteousness is dung compared to the righteousness of Christ. So that's the reaction you're going to get. So when you teach it correctly, you should expect someone to say, that's not right, that's not fair, that's too easy, that's called easy believism. Hence, let's go back to Calvinism. Calvinism doesn't like that either because Calvinism calls it easy believism. Because according to like guys like John MacArthur, he, he attaches like seven to eight different things by faith alone. You're like, what? It's not what you think, but he does attach it. And I'll give you that as an example. Like, for instance, you have to be sincere. Does it say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be sincere and you will be saved? You, you have to have an emotional response, MacArthur says. You've you, you got to cry. Not everybody cries when they accept Christ. But what, what is this idea that you have to be sincere? Addition. You have to be committed. You have to commit your life to Christ. You should believe in Jesus and commit your life. Where does it say that? When I'm talking about commitment, I'm talking about discipleship. I'm not talking about salvation. I do believe the scriptures talk about commitment, but it talks about that in sanctification. But you know what I'm, you see what's happening? They're starting to bridge over sanctification issues into salvation. That's exactly what Calvinists do. You have to be sincere. You have to be emotional. You have to be committed. You got to be willing to obey. Do you? Do you have to be willing to obey? Does it say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be willing to obey and then you will be saved? What is the, what does Paul say to the Philippian jailer? Believe. Do you have to walk an aisle? Do you have to pray? Pray and believe in Jesus Christ. Does it say pray? Now we do it. Nothing wrong with it. But are you adding prayer as an addition to salvation? You have to be sincere and, and ask Jesus into your heart. Do you have to repent? What does repent mean? Turn from what? What was what, what it the, the primary thing it's referring to? Sin, so you, you've got to turn from your sins when you accept Christ. You sure about that? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Where does repentance fit into this? In sanctification. How can you repent and stop sinning when you don't possess the Holy Spirit? How can you stop sinning if you don't have a new nature? You have to have the equipment. You have to have the tools. You have to have the third person of the Trinity inside of you in order to stop doing what you're doing. You can't, you can't just, I'm going to stop my addiction before I accept Christ or alongside of accepting Christ. It doesn't work that way. But Calvinists will say, you've got to stop doing what you're doing in repentance. Now, here's the deal. The word repentance will be used one or two times interchangeably with faith. One or two times. And that's debatable. Okay? Now, when it's used interchangeably with faith, it's, that's what I, it means. It's interchangeable. It means change your mind about the Messiah. Change your mind about yourself. Change your mind about the situation, right? So we can all agree with that. But it doesn't include works. Yes. So you're justified by faith alone. You're sanctified by cooperating in obedience and repentance. I can tell you this. 
98% of the passages that deal with repentance are dealing with believers. Now, when you get to Israel, it'll say to the nation to repent. Now, that's different. That's a nation. That's not an individual. A nation needs to stop practicing idolatry and then prepare for the Messiah. So the way they prepare is to repent of their idolatry, which is the idol of the rabbi. Okay, so I, again, I want to make sure we're, we're clear. So in the one or two passages where repentance is used, metanoia, it's a change of mind, and that's debatable. And we can, we can go along with that, and that's fine. Uh, change your mind. That's, you could say it, it's, it's used interchangeably. But for the other 98% of the passages, if you put those passages into salvation, you're now adding a work. Does that make sense? What do you mean? Well, the, a lot of times repentance means to physically stop doing something. Physically stop. Okay? It's not talking about a change of mind. It's talking about to physically stop doing something. Repent. Okay. Do you see how easy and subtle it is for a Calvinist to slide that in and say, well, you've got to repent of your sins. How many? What do you mean? All of them? Because I don't even know half the sins I do. I mean, think about this from a new believer standpoint. How many sins would you have to repent of in order to be saved? Oh, wait a second. We're now back in the works, aren't we? I don't know. So I just, I guess I could just keep going on and on, and the list could be forever. To Israel. Yes. Which is a, yeah, yeah. Change your mind. So what the Calvinist has done, and you're right, Manny, they have added things to salvation. That's the danger. Yes, they do. The Armenians will use the same thing. That's right. So that's why we're neither Armenian nor Calvinists. We're trying to find the biblical, the biblical balance in all of this. So, folks, do you have to be sincere as far as when you get saved? I'm not talking about sincerity in your sanctification. I'm talking about sincerity when you, were, when you got saved. Let me ask you this. When a five-year-old says that he professes Christ, is he being sincere? Or is he just being a five-year-old? But is sincerity, I'm sorry, required for salvation? Is commitment required for salvation? Is repentance, and let me rephrase that, not repentance, changing of mind, but physically stop doing something and believing, is that required? No. What about Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins? What about that? He says it right there, repent and be baptized. Yeah, 2.38. What does Paul mean by, I mean, sorry, Peter mean by that? Bingo. It's, it's, he's talking to the Jews. He's talking to the nation of Israel. It's a nationalist requirement, which requires repentance of the nation, not of the individual. And then be baptized has to do with uh, the nation or the Jews identifying with the Messiah through public baptism. It's, it, Paul, sorry, Peter is not referring, um, to like how someone gets saved. He's referring to the nation. And then he goes, uh, get, uh, uh Flee from this perverse generation. That's how you know he's speaking to the nation. 
This perverse generation is going to be pounded in 70 AD. You need to get out of it. How do you get out of it? Um, you need to repent of your national sin, which is the impardonable sin, and you need to identify with the Messiah in order to escape the punishment of 70 AD. He's not referring to individual salvation. He's referring to the nation. Okay? So, so there is the, so we eliminate that. So, uh, baptism, uh, yeah, there's 3,000 baptized in one day, right? And so, in, and what he is saying is you need to publicly identify with the Messiah. And because at that point, Many believed in Messiah, according to John chapter 12, verse 42, I think it is, but they refused to identify with the Messiah. They refused to confess the Messiah, lest they be put out of the synagogue. So what was happening is the Jews at that point in time that believed the Messiah would not publicly identify with Messiah because they would be cut off from the society. So that's why Peter throws in baptism, because baptism is your first a public identification with the Messiah. But they would refuse to do it. They wouldn't do it. Yes, because if they don't identify with the Messiah, then the physical judgment of 70 AD will encompass them because they have to renounce Judaism, the thing that rejected the Messiah. They have to repent of that and get and, and and throw that out and not identify anymore with Judaism and then identify with the Messiah in order to escape 70 AD. But is 70 AD talking about eternal uh, sorry eternal punishment? No. 70 AD is talking about physical punishment because of the unpardonable sin. Oh yeah, it's 40 years before. I mean, when did when did when did Peter make that speech? He did it at what? Pentecost. Right? Right after the resurrection. So, anyway. All clear. Clear as mud? Yes. I didn't. That's absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I had no idea how sinful I was until after I accepted Christ. And now I even know how worse of a person I am. Now. Right? I, at 19, I thought I was a pretty good guy. But... You know, I understood I was a sinner, but I knew it in general. But I didn't know the depths of what I know now. I, how could anyone expect that? A Calvinist does. Yeah, right? Charlie. Faith alone. Over 200 passages. Yep. How did the church get this so messed up when there's so many passages, Charlie? Because they lack knowledge and they seek to establish their own righteousness. You just heard the Apostle Paul. Right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I would just say you're using the same terminology. Accepting and believing is like interchangeably. Well, we're not talking about what... Yeah, no, no. But, 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 but that's not... That's not you're, you're, you're creating a, a category that doesn't exist. The Scriptures say believe. Believe would encompass accepting. Now, you can know of Jesus, but that doesn't constitute belief. Belief means I'm trusting and accepting the sacrifice that he made on the cross for me. You can know about Jesus, but that's head knowledge. That wouldn't be belief. So you don't want to, you want to, you don't want to create two false categories. Now, that, that's like in James, they'll say, well, the, the demons believe and shudder. It's not, it's not referring to that same context. Believe means in that context that they know of him but not 
have accepted him as Lord, bow a knee to him, and all that. So here's the deal. Accepting is part of belief. You have to. That would, be, that would encompass. Because believing in him, what, what do you have to accept? You have to accept his person. You have to accept his sacrifice on the cross, right? You would have to. So believing is accepting. So the, the way the scriptures pointed out is through food. So food is being served up to you, and your responsibility is to take the food and eat it. Eat, this is my body. Drink, this is my blood. What do you have to do to the food? You have to accept the food, eat it, and metabolize it, and it becomes part of you. So that's why the metaphor of food is the idea of accepting the Messiah, because you accept the food from him. So it's one and the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. So don't you don't want to create false categories. The category that you're referring to is head knowledge. I know of Santa Claus. I know of the Easter Bunny. I, and then so it's just head knowledge. But but you can believe that George Washington or know that George Washington was the first president, but you're not accepting him as your Lord and Savior. It's a whole different ball game. So that's that's different. But in, accepting is implied in belief. It's not head knowledge. It's it's I'm I'm to believe is means I I'm 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 taking in what you're telling me. I'm metabolizing it. So that's why food's the ultimate metaphor for salvation. And you and Jesus uses that. Drink, I will give you living waters, right? I'm the bread of life. Eat. It means accepting. Receive what I'm giving you and accept it and take it in. Food's a great metaphor for that. Hope that clears it up. Anything else? Anything else? Y'all good? Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.